Hello and welcome to the Seeking Health Podcast. I'm Josiah. And I'm Jessica. We were missionaries for seven years. Until we stepped back in 2019 to seek health and re-examine our beliefs. Right now, I'm a Christian, but not an evangelical. And I am an agnostic. And we are deconstructing. And reconstructing. Together. together. Listen to some of our key episodes, such as Deconstructing Together, Domestic Abuse, I'm a Survivor. The Cult of ATI, Part 1 and 2, and Dehumanized by Purity Culture. Join us on our journey as we seek health together. So together with us today, we have Luke Wilson. And Luke Wilson is a graduate of Liberty University and a survivor of gender conversion therapy. He's currently living my alternate reality best life. He is finishing (laughs) his PhD in comparative studies and teaching at the University of Toronto. Awesome. Good on you. Uh, and he is part of a lawsuit against the U.S. Board of Education for allowing conversion therapy and other discrimination against LGBTQ persons to go on in schools that receive public funding. So um, this is a very interesting topic, very relevant. Um, we've had a few podcasts where we've educated ourselves in research because obviously we were raised with the need of evangelicalism to, um, to believe some things that are very grossly inadequate inaccurate and inadequate mm-hmm. <laughs> about uh, the LGBTQ community. And um, so we are very much excited to just hear your perspective, hear your story and hear your insights, and then hear more about this lawsuit. So to start us off, Luke, can you just tell us about your story? Yeah. So thank you first for, for having me. I appreciate you guys having me on here. Um, <clears throat> so I was born and raised in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Uh, born into a family, uh, not a Christian family. Uh, I had an agnostic dad and my mom was, I suppose, haunted by her Baptist demons growing up. Um, <laughs> okay. and that came out in a number of ways. Uh, you know, so when we, when we were little, we would go to church up until about maybe grade two ish. Uh, but after that, like every good Canadian family, we just went to the cottage on weekends and, <laughs> and enjoyed ourselves <laughs> that way. Um, <laughs> pardon me. So yeah, so I was raised in a, a family that, you know, religion wasn't a big deal. It wasn't a main topic of conversation. In fact, I remember all of maybe two conversations about God or faith in some way, shape, or form. One, when wow. I found out my dad didn't believe in creationism and my mom was ticked. Um, we all got <laughs> called downstairs and, you know, had to sit in a circle. Uh, that's hmm. a little dramatic, but, you know, something so along those lines. Um, but yeah, I, I, though, in grade uh, going into grade nine, I became really big uh, into the creation versus evolution debate. My okay. brother, for whatever reason, uh, <laughs> was interested in, and he bought a bunch of DVDs by Kent Hovind. Uh, oh, I'm oh so you sorry. know. <laughs> me too, me too. Yeah, his, uh, his like bombastic sort of uh, yeah. debate style and um, just, uh, yeah. He's, he's a character. I think he eventually went to prison because he said it was the, the taxes he didn't pay were God's money or that was God's money. So, <laughs> oh. um, but he's back. He's back in Pensacola. So all is well. Um, but uh, my brother got really into Kent Hovind. And so uh, he was like, you got to watch these DVDs with me. I was like, no, nah, I'm good. Like, I don't want to watch, you know, DVDs about science or, or maybe not so much science. Not science. Uh, <laughs> looking back, right? Um, and finally he convinced me and I, I watched it. And I think because I was, uh, I, w- I was actually, uh, sort of brought in by, by his debate style, that it was just this very sort of caustic tone, also comical, also pseudoscientific. But when you're going into grade nine, uh, you don't really understand what science is in a lot of ways. So, um, 
I decided I'd watch another DVD with him and then another and another to the point that I started going on, you know, like Ken Ham's uh, Answers in Genesis website, among others, finding out a lot of, uh, uh, you know, theories maybe is the most generous way I can put it about how <laughs> mm-hmm. we and the universe began. And I, over time, decided that if, in fact, I believed that there was a creator, if, in fact, I believed that there was an intelligent designer, I should probably figure out or at least make some sort of contact with that designer. And eventually, I just went back to the church that I, I went, we went to when we were little. And it was a fellowship evangelical Baptist church. Uh, so pretty conservative. And I don't That's think... That's what my dad pastored. Oh, really? Feb- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. In the fellowship. I mean, oh, it's, it's a wild... Uh, it's a wild group <laughs> you know, um, but yeah so I, I went and I, I first I actually went to uh, I went to an arts high school I just started high school and I was in my art class and I went to my friend Becky Becky was this uh, and we're, we're pals still she's she's living in New York now but at the time she had those you know blonde spikes shaved side of the head dark makeup all you know wearing black constantly and a lot of leather um, and she I went to her I said yo Becky uh, you want to go to church with me uh, this Wednesday for a youth group and she was like, fuck yeah, I do. And so off we went to uh, youth group. She didn't come back, uh, to say, but I, I did. I, I went back uh, and I don't think I missed any youth group or church service or any really a, a event at the church for like two years, just because I was so, you know, I jumped headlong into, into uh, my faith, I suppose, in my, my faith journey. And so I, uh, somewhere along those, or along that, within that timeline, um I actually I know when it was it was when my my dad passed away when I was in grade 11 and at the funeral my uncle or my mom's cousin technically uh we just call him Uncle Gary he came to the funeral and said hey you know would you want to come down for a free trip to Virginia and I was like no <laughs> like I don't want to go to Virginia um and he's like no 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 come down It'll, you know it's a fun little trip it's free you'll have fun uh you know it's uh, a trip to Liberty University and <laughs> I, at this point, uh, it's funny, I found out that someone went to Briarcrest uh, earlier on. I was planning on going to Briarcrest uh, <laughs> to, to study, but I eventually uh, went down on this trip to Virginia. And uh, that was my first trip out of, out of six. I went down five more times because I fell in love uh-huh. with the school. Wow. Um, you know, I thought everything there was just so much cooler. It was so much bigger. I mean, when you're growing up in Canada, like Christianity is not cool. Um, it's not necessarily a big thing, at least at city art schools. Um, and so finding a bunch of other people around my age, finding a number of people who were, you know, committed to their faith, I thought was just, you know, the neatest thing. And, and I was like a, a sucker for anything like Christian uh, culture. So like music or, you know, I heard like uh, Anne Berlin and, you know, these like big name Christian bands that actually I still like Anne Berlin a lot. But uh, I digress, you know, there were a number of things that just drew me in. And so ultimately I got a scholarship to go. But like I say now is that um, in order to get a scholarship, you need to be doing scholarship. And I don't necessarily know if what I did at Liberty University or my four-year tenure can be uh, identified as scholarship or academic in a lot of ways. So I was there for four years and uh, about two weeks into my time there, I had this like... uh, I don't know, the generous way of putting it is a romantic fling with uh, someone on my hall. He was my sp- one of my spiritual life directors. Uh, he and I uh, figured out we were, uh, you know, uh, gay and, or at the time, <laughs> as we would have put it, you know, struggling with same sex attraction. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and we had a moment 
And after that moment, he refused to talk to me. And of course, most likely out of like, you know, subsequent evangelical shame and guilt uh, and anxiety for what we had, you know, uh, the, the kiss. But uh, after that, it was, um, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was a weird moment because I was at a school that find and or punish students for being gay. And I didn't know what the, you know, the policies were in the sense of if I went and reported something and said, hey, I want to, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I want to talk about this with someone. I didn't know if I can get, I could get in trouble. Um, and I should have said that before I went down, I actually knew that Liberty had a conversion therapy program. Um, they had, when I was there on the, they had like these announcements that were on the, the, the projector, the screens that were rotating announcements. And one of the announcements was for anyone who was, again, quote unquote, struggling with same-sex attraction. And I saw that, I noted it. I actually talked to some people who went there about it. I was like, hey, what about that, you know, that, that ad I saw? Uh, trying to play it cool and uh, and try to be covert, which I don't think I really was. Um, but uh, I knew that they had this conversion therapy program. So after this this encounter with my spiritual life director, I I decided uh, that I was going to reach out to this this guy who was responsible for the conversion therapy program. His name was Dane Emmerich. He just retired last uh, uh, last semester. Uh, so good news there. However, of course, I think what's going to happen in the future at Liberty is that there's going to be another conversion therapist if there's not already one now uh, to replace him. But when I was there, I reached out to him. I made a fake email because I wanted to, to to try to disguise my my identity because I didn't want to use, of course, my yeah. email um, or my email that I applied to the school with, which was like Gorilla Flip Flip 74 or something like that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that, that might have been a, a telltale uh, sign that it was me. Um, but uh, I decided to make an email that was as far away from my, you know, uh, 18 year old self as possible. And of course, being a gay kid from Toronto, I was like, what's the opposite? And it was something along the lines of like Texas football fan or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, when people thought of Luke Wilson, they didn't think of Texas or football. So I thought I was yeah. pretty safe with that one. Um, and so I emailed him and I said, hey, if I'm to come talk to you, you know, what's, can I get in trouble, you know, or, or is the you know, is the institution gonna find out or is my RA gonna find out or my RA's gonna find out, or is my mom gonna find out, all this kind of stuff. Um, he responded back, he said, no, everything we uh, talking here is, uh, uh, everything about, everything we talking here about is confidential, um, unless you're gonna self-harm and I wasn't. So uh, he said, come on by. And so I set up a meeting with his office and I still remember like what I was wearing. Uh, I was wearing American Eagle, like American Eagle hoodie. I'm still embarrassed about it. I shouldn't have worn it. Um, I should probably should have been more embarrassed about that than uh, <laughs> being gay, but you know, uh, 18 year old Luke. And so I went in and I uh, I remember sitting in this little waiting room, absolutely terrified, thinking, oh my goodness, I don't know, like, should I get out of here? Should I stay? Uh, eventually, of course I stayed. Uh, and before I had even time to, to second guess my decision, uh, he said goodbye to another student. I opened the door, said goodbye, and then he's hiring Luke. And that was the beginning of four years of, of conversion therapy. And so um, wow. it was uh, looking back, you know, uh, people oftentimes ask like what what happened in the room you know like what what did you talk about um, I think some people have seen you know filmic depictions of conversion therapy whether it be the miseducation of Karen Post or um, but I'm a cheerleader uh, the RuPaul film um, or you know Boy Erased maybe um, most recently and so my experience was was quite different from all of them uh, I think that what made my experience different but also really insidious was how um, seemingly kind my conversion therapist was mm -hmm. how he was this like grandfatherly type that he was looking out for my best interest that he was there to 
to help me overcome this, uh, this quote unquote sin that if I were to focus my eyes on Jesus, that, you know, all would be right and God would be on his throne. Uh, and, you know, I would find eventually a woman and conversion therapy does not preach necessarily that you're going to find all women attractive. You're simply going to find uh, one woman, like a unicorn of a woman um, that I never found, strangely <laughs> enough, not to give away the ending. But uh, yeah, so I, I, I went uh, into these meetings and the meetings consisted of when we first went in, always a big bear hug looking back very, I think very strange in the sense that I think what he was oftentimes trying to do both when he greeted me and as well as when he said goodbye, as well as when he prayed for me and laid hands on me was to show like the good touch, bad touch, right? Like this is what, this is how men can touch each other. And it's like, yeah, they can. Um, but you know, that was, <laughs> it's one, you know, way of doing it, I suppose, Pastor Dane. And so uh, he, then we'd, you'd sit down and he'd say like, tell me about your week, like what's going on. Um, and we would take stock, like inventory of, of what I had done that week that was either sinful or what I had done that were what he called victories, ways that I, uh, you know, evaded or overcame or pushed through my temptation, um, you know, and things like that were like, oh, I was tempted to, you know, look at pornography, but instead I went and called a friend and didn't like that. Th those were sort of like victories where I bounced my eyes, where like I looked at <laughs> yes. and I looked away. I love talking to evangel other evangelicals or ex-evangelicals because at least you guys like know what I mean as soon as I say it. Like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> bounce that? your eyes. Look at the countenance. <laughs> exactly. So so yeah. So I you know these were the things that we I had to uh, account for. Then there were of course the things that he said were you know what we called slip ups where I was you know uh, sinning or doing something that I, I, I apparently shouldn't have been, and so. Uh, after taking that really personal and, and, and oftentimes invasive, you know, uh, or offering that really invasive or responding to those invasive questions, um, we would then go on to scripture and he would read scripture. Um, uh, he also prayed. It was never me praying. It was never me reading scripture. It was always him doing that. And I think that is pretty telling and symbolic of, uh, you know, how he was the one praying for me. He was the one who was reading scripture aloud, not me, right? That there was almost this like he was the mediator between us. Um, and I think that's oftentimes how he saw himself. And I think that's how he still sees himself with a lot of folks, um, that he's the one who's helping them uh, remain within the fold. Um, he's the one who's trying to you know, keep them uh, on the straight and narrow pun uh, completely intended. So, uh, you know, that was, uh, uh, and then we, we, would, uh, we would pray. Uh, we also had this workbook. My workbook was uh, Growth into Manhood, Resuming the Journey by Alan Medinger. Um, it's an ex-gay text in the beginning. He's like, I don't know how to explain it, but God healed me of my, my homosexuality. And from there, like, that's the, re you know, the text isn't going to go well from there. Um, but <laughs> that was my textbook. Uh, and yeah, that's what we would do. And, you know, when we first met the first few sessions, it was a lot about my mom and dad, this like pseudo Freudian, uh, psychology about right. like, how was your relationship to your mom? You know, she was overbearing, but how was your relationship to your dad? Well, he was phenomenal and actually much more involved than my mom. Oh, well, that doesn't fit our narrative. And so what he would do is just focus on the fact that I had an overbearing mom. Um, and so uh, that's something we did talk about uh, recurrently throughout our meetings. But that was conversion therapy. I mean, that's that's only one part of the entire experience at Liberty, I think, that, um, you know, you have your curriculum. There are a number of classes there that I took. Um, in those classes, we had, you know, I still have the slides. I'm a sort of a, a pack rat when it comes to my academic work. And so all the stuff from Liberty, all the stuff from my schools that I went to after that, I've kept and I have these, these, these slides and they're things about like, 
the ways to respond like compassionately to gays and you know the evils of like feminist theology and queer theology and uh, this kind of stuff um and in those (laughs) classes too we also had like things where it was like you know and this is this these were courses i got academic credit for it was like you know (laughs) uh, dating you know when you guys are dating we had a red light yellow light green light model like and they would he was essentially say like green light yellow light or red light for this and we'd like put up our hands like this is like <laughs> the quality of education i received at liberty university oh my so, word yeah we paid for this or i, I paid for someone paid for this um i paid for this but uh, <laughs> uh that was that was that and then you know there's also just the campus culture of homo like the homophobic camp, campus culture where you know uh to be honest like a lot of schools probably have something similar in the dorms with when you're 18 19 20 you know very homophobic uh, spaces oftentimes, guys' dorms, but I think at Liberty concentrated homophobia because it was not only acceptable, it was something that was, how do you say, um, I don't know, I don't know what the, the, the next adjective would be, but something along the lines of justifiable maybe is the word, right? That, oh, well, they're just queers, they're just homos, they're just faggots, whatever you know word you wanna use, uh, that ultimately what we're saying about them is accurate. What we're saying about them is true, whether or not, you know, it's politically correct. And Liberty actually even had a slogan when I was there that they were politically correct since, you know, the founding of the school. And they had wrote this on like t-shirts, like politically incorrect since 1971. Um, I believe it's like, 71 or 73, but I'm pretty sure it's 71. Um, but yeah, so this, this was the kind of, you know, experience that I had while I was there. Um, and the entire time I was drinking the Liberty Kool-Aid, like I was on board with this all. I was complicit within my, you know, uh, in my own victimization. I was complicit in conversion therapy. Again, I'm the one who chose to go there. I did not have to go there, um, but it was obviously an option and it was something that I could have done and that was given as a, you know, uh, an option that was on the table. Um, and like I say now, you know, abuse, abuse should not be and never should be an option. Um, right, something that actively harms and hurts people should never be an option. Um, but you know, again, I, I, I do to this day still take full credit for the fact that I chose to do that. Um, I also understand that it was a part of a, a greater evangelical, you know, culture that framed and shaped yeah. me, and you mm-hmm. know, told me that this is what I wanted, this is what I needed. So, but nonetheless, you know, I'll uh, I'll plead guilty that I I was the one who, d- <laughs> who decided to go. Um, after that, I went to a few different schools. I went to McMaster University um, for my MA. I went to Vanderbilt University after that for my master's in theological studies. Um, I taught for a year actually at a Church of Christ school in Nashville uh, after my MTS. And then I started my PhD in Florida. Um, and I fast tracked my PhD in Florida because I was living in Florida and I needed to get the heck out. <laughs> I didn't live in Florida anymore. Uh, and off I came back to Canada and I've been teaching uh, here since. But Um, I think grad school, and I say this, you know, uh, a lot now, I think grad school saved my life. Um, Mm. I think I would have been married uh, to a woman uh, at this point. I think I would have been, um, you know, at this point, probably with children, uh, like all of my friends, like most of my friends have, you know, one to four kids at this point, and they're my age. Um, And, you know, if that's their vibe, that's their vibe. But I just know at this point, it's not mine. Um, But I think I, for a long time, I was taught to uh, pursue a happiness that wasn't mine. I was taught to pursue, you know, uh, a sense of, yeah. of of wholeness that was not my wholeness. I mean, again, a lot of people get married, a lot of people have kids, and that's great. Um, the world needs to populate, <laughs> and then leave it to us gays not to populate. But you know, I just <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't my happiness. But again, this is something that I learned over time. But when I started at McMaster, I remember for the first time telling one of my office mates, my call, one of my colleagues and, and, and friends, I, I told her about my 
my experience at Liberty. And, and I came out to her and she was like, as if like, it was like, I told her that I, I had Cheerios for breakfast. It was like, and, um, and that was such a weird moment because up until that point, I would psych myself, you know, out, I would be really nervous to, to come out to someone. And at the time I would have identified as, you know, I'm struggling with same sex attraction. And that's how I would have said it myself. But here it was that I was attracted to men and she was just like, oh, okay. And we just kept talking about it. And I told her, you know, about my past. I told her that I went through conversion therapy. And I remember her response was just like, you went through what? And up mm -hmm. until that point, I mean, I, here's the thing. I didn't think it was strange or weird. I thought it was something mm -hmm. to be, to be kept secret because of course I wasn't telling people that I was a conversion therapy. I wasn't going out there and announcing it to my church or to my friends, but I certainly didn't think it was weird. I thought it was something that was good. I thought it was something that was like necessary. And so when I told her and she responded that way, I was like, that was sort of the first moment that shocked me out of, hey, this isn't normal. Hey, this isn't okay. Um, and from there, it sort of started this, this spiritual journey that opened me up a wee bit. Um, when I was at McMaster, I knew that I was still thinking through a lot of questions of faith, spirituality, and specifically as they related to sexuality. And I said, you know, that I wanted, I decided that I wanted to do a, a degree in theology. And so most Canadian schools, you have to pay for them. In American schools, they'll pay you. And so <laughs> I applied to, to three schools, the one that gave me the most money, which started to be Vanderbilt. Um, I went and, you know, that's how the decision was made there and also was by far the best fit. Um, and it was there that I first started meeting people who were Christians. And obviously at this point, they had done a lot of work ahead of time. But when I met them, it was as if like, again, sort of like my friend from McMaster, like, what, what do you mean, you know, is it okay to be gay and be a Christian? Of course it is. And again, like these people obviously had thought about this for a very long time and came from oftentimes very conservative traditions themselves. But at that point it was just taken for granted that it was okay to be gay. It was okay to be also a Christian. And mm -hmm. that was new, that was novel. And in Nashville was the first time that I lived as an out gay man because in, in, in Hamilton, when I went to McMaster, I was leading a youth group that of course, you know, if that had have come out, I would have been immediately removed and probably kicked out of the church. Um, mm -hmm. So I was in Nashville and that's when I decided that I was gonna just come out to my friends as a gay guy. Um, and that was the beginning of a process. I met someone for a long time and we were, he also came from a very religious background. Um, and he and I, I guess, in a lot of ways started deconstructing our faith. Um, it wasn't at that point that we didn't believe, or I didn't believe in God. Um, I definitely still believed in God. I still believe in God, should I say. Um, but my faith at that point certainly shifted. And I remember there was one moment in class that there was, the, the, the professor said, just because you can, just because uh, the Bible are not God's words, that they're instead words about God does not mean that the text isn't sacred or holy. And I remember that was just this paradigm shift. And I was like, my gosh, like up until this point, I thought every single word was spoken through man by God. And I thought that I wasn't able to question them. And I thought I wasn't able to question anything in scripture. So I decided in that moment when I heard him talk about this, I was sort of wrestling with it myself. And that was a huge paradigm shift for me that opened up the possibility of being gay because I think being in such an either or paradigm evangelicalism is an either or paradigm right right wrong mm -hmm. good evil yeah. of, the, of the enemy of God that my sexuality was a wedge in that binary and it didn't allow me to hold on to such a dualistic way of thinking and from there again the deconstruction process continued but 
it wasn't until, I mean, what I study, I, I, both of my master's theses were on Holocaust literature or Holocaust uh, studies in general. Uh, hmm. was on Nazi propaganda. My, my dissertations on the transmission of trauma from survivors to their children. Um, oh, fascinating. We got to talk about that. We got to talk about that. <laughs> We'd love to. We'd love to. Um, uh. And, and so in being in Holocaust studies, there was, there's one thinker who's at this point by far the best known Holocaust survivor, Elie Wiesel. Um, his book Night, it's this real, I think the New York Times called it a thin volume, or what is it, a thin volume of terror? Uh, it's like 115 pages, it's super short, but you pick up the book and after five pages, you're not stopping, right? Like you just keep going, 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 because it's this like punch, 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 punch in the face about this man's journey from before Auschwitz uh, to different camps, uh, to Auschwitz, you know, and then ultimately on the death march afterwards until uh, he wakes up in, in a, on a hospital bed you know, afterwards. And so it's this text that, that threw me for a loop because for a long time when I was studying the Holocaust, I wanted to figure out, you know, where was God? What did God do? And really quickly into that, I found out there were no answers. <laughs> and I decided, well, I should probably shift my focus and think about why did people allow this to happen? You know, how did mm. men and women, um, you know, allow this or participate in this event or these events that we call the Holocaust? And still hard to kind of figure out any answers to that question to this day, right? Even like, you know, thinking about altruism and thinking about the, the communities or the individuals who saved Jews or other victims at the time, you know, both the question of how do people do this and also why do people resist this? Both questions to me, I think are endlessly fascinating and they're things that I, I grapple with throughout my studies or I have grappled with and continue to grapple with. But it was the Holocaust that changed my mind about God. And, it actually, I was in a class on Elie Wiesel, and Elie Wiesel, again, he wrote this book called Night, but he's written, you know, countless, not countless, I'm sure, I'm sure there is a count, but there are a number of books afterwards, uh, you know, newspaper articles and speeches and whatnot, and this guy was relentless with God, because he said, and he never gave up his faith, his faith changed for sure, like, no doubt that his 14-year-old faith that he went into the camps with was markedly different from his faith afterwards, but nonetheless, he still remained uh, a person who was committed to God and committing to, to following God and figuring out where the hell were you, God, during the Holocaust? And he has this New York Times article where he essentially says, he's like, God, it's this open letter to God. It's like, God, can we just get to the bottom of this? Like, can we just figure this the heck out? Because like, where where were you? What's going on? Let's just hash it out and we'll go from there. Of course, obviously it's a, it's a monologue. It's not a dialogue. And that, that article, as well as a number of others started really getting to me because it was like, he wasn't allowing God off the hook. Whereas I think evangelicalism, oftentimes whenever there's anything evil or anything, any questions relating to theodicy, we let God off the hook so easily. There's no wrestling with God, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's not even like a protest that we see in Job. It's oftentimes just like, well, God's ways are higher, which is actually from the book of Job, right? But it's like, I, at the time, had no ability to grapple with God because I had no precedent set for me. But when I saw Elie Wiesel doing it, and he again was relentless, that gave me the, the permission in a way uh, to think about, okay, if this person of faith is, is, is grappling with God, I can do the same. And ultimately it came down to the point where I um, realized that I don't think God acts in the world. I don't think that God can act in the world. And it really was that, um, what's that uh, phrase, too blessed to be stressed. I heard someone say it, like they were blessed. And it was something about, simply, I think it was about this woman. She said she got a, a coffee from Starbucks and she said, I'm blessed. And I sat there for a second and I was like, what the hell? Did that person <laughs> actually claim that she's blessed? Because I thought to myself, for that woman to receive a blessing from God, of course, an active 
um, action on God's part to bless this woman, to give her a damn coffee, like a free coffee, as if God's concerned about giving this person a free coffee at Starbucks of all places, you know, but then says, you know, the, what's in that anything that's not been given is of course a decision by God as well, right? If God's deciding to give a, a good gift, God's desi- decision to not give a good gift everywhere else, anywhere else, precludes the idea that you can have a God who acts justly, right? Like how could there be a God who justifies his free coffee, his free Starbucks coffee for so for, you know, for, for Karen, but then over on the other side of things, you know, isn't doing anything for anyone, I don't know, in the Sudan or anyone, I don't know, in downtown Toronto, you know, sitting on the side of a street, right? That didn't make sense to me. And so this idea of blessing was this, was this word that really broke apart my entire theology And I thought to myself, I don't think I can believe in a God who's good and acts because if God's acting at some points, God's not acting at other points, that's messed up. So I decided at that point, I believe that I do believe there's a God. I do believe that there's a creator for me. I don't know how we couldn't believe in a God. Um, To me, it seems like in some ways intellectually dishonest, but though, you know, I guess other people could accuse me of being intellectually dishonest as well. Um, That's fine. But I think at this point that God's there, but God doesn't act. How could God act? I think if God wants to act, I would like to think that God wants to act. And maybe that's speaking to my own desires that I want a good God. I want a God that's on my side and working towards the greater good. But I can't think of a God that, that, that is, is both good and, and, and um, active. I think that there, that God is very like Thomas Jefferson, I think did, you know, his deistic sort of uh, understanding of God where God created the world, set it in motion. And was like, and here we go. Like, <laughs> I think that's more along the lines of where God is. I think God's cheering us on from the sidelines. I hope that God's cheering us on from the sidelines. I have no idea though, if God's cheering us on from the sidelines, but I'd like to think that's the case. And so now at this point, I'm, I'm 31. I just turned 31. What is it last week or the week before? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, I, I, I'm very deistic about a lot of things. Um, but I think that for me, the, the pursuit of justice or the pursuit of goodness and the pursuit of um, uh, making people's lives better, which um, I think, I don't think evangelicalism taught me that. I really don't. I think that it was something yeah. that was talked about. And I think it was a lot of lip service, but I think that that desire came even before ev- evangelicalism. And it was something that grew alongside evangelicalism, though I don't think it's something I can say the Genesis was found within that tradition. Um, but I am still at this point in both my scholarship, my teaching and also my work, you know, I'm hoping that what I do is, is affecting change in a positive way um, for the livelihoods uh, of other people. Um, but it's certainly not within a, a, an evangelical framework. Well, Luke, thank you so much for sharing your story and uh, can definitely see that this is, you're not somebody that's given up either. Maybe that's why um, this author, sorry, I forget his name, but really spoke to you because you're somebody also that's tenacious in your pursuit of truth and justice. And that's something that we've really noticed in the deconstruction community. I mean, the stereotype is, oh, well, they fell away, quote unquote, because they weren't, quote unquote, strong enough. And what we're finding is actually people re-examine their faith because of strength, because of resilience, and because of ethical consideration, because things don't make sense. Things aren't healthy. Things are not what um what everyone's claiming they they are so i'd love to pull back to uh our discussion of your time in uh the fallwell university uh liberty liberty university <laughs> i wish um, it was called fallwell university though right like f u fallwell <laughs> <laughs> i wish i wish that'd be awesome <laughs> that would be interesting so 
Uh, Liberty University is kind of famous in deconstruction circles just because different people have really deconstructed hard from their time there. Something that people talk about is kind of the snitch culture. And um, can you verify this? You actually had to pay a fine for like ethical violations. Is that kind of like, can you explain that to me? That's very odd. Yeah. So when I was there, we had what's called, and it still is called this, it's called the Liberty Way. Uh, it's the student code of conduct and it's still available online. I can send it to you if you'd like. Um, but it's this, it's this rule book, essentially, you, you know, enumerating what you can and cannot do. Um, and when I was there, they had what was called a point system. So if you amassed a certain number of points for certain infractions, so like, you know, if I didn't make my bed in the morning uh, before chapel, I would get a certain number of points. If I was caught swearing or if I was caught smoking, I'd get a certain number of points. Um, and of course I did both of those thinking I was so bad at the time, smoking cigarettes, (laughs) swearing, uh, but anywho, uh, you know, you'd get a certain number of points. And if you had a certain number of points that were uh, collected, you would have to pay a fine oftentimes, uh, depending on the number and sometimes community service. And if it got too severe, you would, uh, you would get, uh, you'd have to go before a review board, essentially review, have like an interview and sometimes they've decided that you weren't fit to be at Liberty at that time. And so um, some people get kicked out. Um, But I, I didn't, you know, it's, I still to this day don't know how this happened. I didn't get one point my entire time there. I was (gasps) a very good boy. (laughs) You were good at hiding, right? You were good at being bad. much more accurate. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) You can't grow up in this type of lifestyle not learn how to hide that's true it's true it, it's absolutely it teaches true. you double life doesn't it yeah 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 evangelical uh, that's and you're right uh, evangelicalism <laughs> forces you to live a double life right like mm-hmm. it's it's something that uh, and you know it maps onto very well being gay because you have to live a double life that, in that sense as well right being gay you're always trying to convince others and convince yourself that you're, you're straight Whereas in evangelicalism, you're, I remember in high school, all I wanted to do was convince my friends that my life was wonderful because I wanted them to come to know Jesus. And I right. thought my life was a reflection of that. So I thought I had to have a really good PR face, uh, a public facing persona. And yeah. you have to live that, that dualistic again, sort of way of yeah. being. Totally. Mm-hmm. And the two things that stand out to me about that is um, this lack of boundaries that is going on and also this lack of freedom usually when you when you go to university you think well this is my freedom time and this is the time when you know when you're a kid you, you're under your parents you don't have a lot of freedom when you grow up and you have kids you know that places some limits or you get a career or whatever it is you settle down at a certain point you have less freedom but in between you have that time to really figure out who you are and at liberty and to a lesser extent at our bible schools that we went to you didn't have that liberty. That liberty was taken away. And it, it's similar to a university experience, but everybody's in your business, you're in everybody else's business, and you don't actually have freedom to become who you are. There's a certain model of, of what is allowed and what isn't allowed. Yeah. Um, to, to your first point, the idea of no boundaries. Yeah, like what boundaries <laughs> were set there? And it's weird because like to this day, I, you know, I'll meet evangelicals or, or ex-evangelicals and you can still see, right, that there's this like lack of boundary that's yeah. there where they think, oh, I can ask you anything I want. I can tell you anything I want. You know, I remember one time I was in a garage sale in Florida before I was like hightailing it back to, to Toronto 
and I was trying to sell everything to get rid of it. And this guy, one of the, he and his wife came up, he went to my roommate who was a woman or pardon me, she went, his wife went to my roommate who was a woman and he came to me and started talking to me within five minutes. He told me, uh, not only that he voted for Trump, not only that he had a pornography addiction, but also why, why he thought, uh, black people were the, the reason for their, for their struggles. And I was like, sir, how in the world did you think any of that was appropriate to say in general, but to an absolute stranger within again, like the first like five, 10 minutes of meeting me, like, dear wow. God, like what in the world? Um, <laughs> so boundaries were not a thing. I mean, even thinking about in conversion therapy, right? Like you're yeah. having a therapist, like therapists, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, that it's, it's normal to just like start asking you about your teenage sexual history in vivid no. detail, asking for follow-up, no. you know, you know, details. So this kind of stuff. And, and I think, you know, again, like people will say, like, didn't you think it was weird? Did you think it was crazy? This guy was asking this. No, I didn't think it was weird or crazy. Why? Because was I was normal. never told that this was weird. I was always yeah. told this is just how you act. This is, you know, what you do, because when you break down those boundaries, it's harder to get away, right? Like it's harder to have yeah. like, oh, this is my space and your space. Instead, it's our space. Yeah. And I think there's this like collectivity that, that really feeds into why people are a part of this herd, why this people are a part of this, like what group think. Um, so the boundaries, no, there weren't boundaries. And then with friends and, you know, uh, people at, you know, your RAs, your spiritual life directors or whatnot, these people, again, they didn't have a sense of boundaries. So they thought they could ask you or, you know, a little bit of anything, <laughs> depending on if they were interested or not. Um, and I think the idea of freedom too, same thing. It's, it is ironic that Liberty's name is Liberty, like where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and liberty, right? Um, not so much. Uh, but <laughs> It's just wild too that you think about how when you're in a, like you were saying, like in university, it's a time for self-exploration. It's a time to, to consider um, uh, who you are, figure that out, but you don't have the space in a literal and a figurative sense to do that at Liberty, right? Like you don't yeah. have any space to your own. Like even in the dorms, you always have either a roommate or two roommates. I always had two roommates my entire time there in a room that should not have been <laughs> for three people. Um, so you're, you know, climbing over each other almost literally um but no the idea of freedom um I didn't have that I think that again what grad school did for me was that it gave me that intellectual freedom it gave yeah. me the space to think through and have people challenge me uh in a way that I was never uh I had never experienced up until that point because when I was at Liberty you know I remember I was because I was never politically conservative that was one thing like I, I diverged in that way from day one I always thought like you guys Americans like what in the world do you believe? Like, this is crazy the way that <laughs> mix, you know, politics and religion, not to say Canada's immune to it, because it's certainly not. We have no. a number of, uh, of morons uh, who, who do the same. But I think yeah. that, to put it academically, um, no, but it's like, I remember, you know, hearing people's political views and just being like blown away by what they believed and how they mixed it with their, with their faith. Um, but no, there, there wasn't, there wasn't a sense of freedom. There wasn't a sense of self-exploration, but certainly in grad school, that's where that began. Um, and I was challenged in a way at Liberty that I wasn't. Cause I was, again, I was the one who was challenging things. I remember one time they, the professor was talking about uh, capital punishment and I was like, hold the phone. We just had a unit on abortion, but now you're saying capital punishment's okay. And he was like, Luke, uh, and it's like 150 person class. He's like, or he's like, Luke, come to my office we'll talk about it later and I was like oh my gosh like what an absolute like joke of a of an argument that you anyway this is the yeah. kind of stuff that yeah. I was considered like the bad kid forever like questioning things though again for most things theologically I was in line uh with uh, the official school doctrine but grad school again 
you're allowed to actually think and think for yourself, which is was a wild way of being that I was not yet there at that, at that point used to. Yeah. What I'm hearing you say is that conversion therapy is, it's not as though it was this strange thing off to the side. It, it was very much integrated with the whole package of liberty, which is really an accurate representation of the whole package of what's happening within North American evangelicalism. It sounds, I mean, it's, it's a little bit more extreme, it sounds like, but this is very similar, this lack of boundaries, this everybody's in everybody else's business. And something that we've mentioned a few times um, with a, a fair bit of passion is this idea of Christian counseling. When we actually went to counseling and I took a few courses to become, you know, kind of starting down that road that we haven't continued, but just the first couple introductions to what it is that you're a counselor, I was like, oh, wow, you're supposed to have boundaries? You're not supposed to touch people, uh, you know, without their very explicit consent. You're not supposed to ever share personal details <laughs> as a counselor. You're not supposed to push religion on people. You're not supposed to tell them what to do. <laughs> you're not supposed to tell them what to do, <laughs> you know. Um, and even like this pseudo psychological, I really resonated with that term because like it's really fucking hard to become a counselor, like a real counselor. Like I, at this point, we've basically given up because the road is, you know, it's where I'm not at a stage of life where I can get a second master's. And you can't just take a few courses and hang a shingle and say, I'm a counselor. You can say you're a Christian counselor. Yeah. Go ahead. That's fine. <laughs> but to be a real counselor, you actually need to know because there's a lot of research and people have done a lot of studies and you need to master that material. And it's scandalous to me that people can, can claim that, oh yeah, I'm going to tell you how to live your life and tell you how to do your sexuality and, and fix all your psychological problems when they haven't been trained that that's they just read the Bible. <laughs> oh what my more God. do you need? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They read the Bible without, you know, examining their own presuppositions and they've just read their own beliefs back to themselves. Yeah. Um, right? Exactly. I mean, this message, and I, I'd like to get your reaction on this. This is kind of a, a condensed version of evangelical message about what, what to believe about homosexuality and LGBTQ is that the there's two genders. Traditional family is the, the target. Anything off the target is less than ideal. Um, homosexual sex is gross. Gay men are insufficiently masculine. Um, these are not my ideas, but I think they're very common in evangelicalism. It's a choice. Um, and it's the cure to quote unquote gayness is hypermasculinity or hyperfemininity. And um, the Bible is abundantly clear on all of this. And if you don't agree with this, then you're clearly not a Christian. Is that kind of what, what the message is that you received and how did that, how did that uh, affect you long-term? Yeah, so the very foundation of conversion therapy is that, how do you say? So it's not that they would claim that it's a sexuality issue at its core. They would say that it's a gender issue, uh, a gender identity issue at its core in the sense that according to conversion therapy thinking, it's not that I um, am inherently gay. In fact, it's, it's much more that there's like a latent heterosexuality for everyone. And mm -hmm. some people diverge from that. And the reason why is because their gender identity is veering from what God apparently 
desired or, 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 or uh, uh, what's the word, designed us as, um, to, or designed us to be. So apparently it's not that I'm, I'm gay inherently, it's instead that I, at some point in my journey of masculinity, veered off the road and went outside of the capital M masculine, outside of the capital M man world and became more effeminate. And if only, according to this thinking, I were to veer back and live into the world of men and be a real man and know what that is in an embodied sense, then I will realign my sexuality because it sexuality follows gender. And so, I see. you know, a lot of what I was told were things like, you need to do things that men do. And they would say, it's not that you have to do things that men do that'll make, it's not a matter of you doing like masculine things that'll make you straight, but it is a matter of you doing masculine things that'll make you straight. And you're like, wait, what? Did, you, <laughs> did I just hear you? And, and, and again, it's this like, well, it's sort of like, it's equivocating, right? Where they claimed that again, if I were to, for instance, play sports, or my favorite one was that if, if you just like look in the newspaper and, and, and look at, you know, the sports, uh, you can tell how, how many sports I've been following or how many sports I watch. What do they call it? Like the stats or the scores? Of sports. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I love sports. <laughs> they would say like look at the scores find out who won who scored or whatever and then go to your buddies at church on sunday morning and talk about sports because that's what guys do um there were other things where like my my textbook uh, journey or growth into manhood talked about uh, uh what was it uh, carpentry right if you do if you do carpentry and i was like how oh, very jesus of you um <laughs> asking me to to work wood um but you know this was these were the things that they told us would would work um and i of course never I, they were like yeah you should go play sports you should come for hikes with the other the other gay guys on campus because they had this group conversion therapy as well which is a whole other story that i went to once but they were like if you want to come to this you can come to this and i was like after i went i was like hell no like i don't want to go back to that um and like go for a hike like as if i'm about to go for a hike um and but again this was what i was supposed to have done in order to realign my gender and i thought well i can do it without doing that kind of stuff which maybe again maybe if i had gone back and done the, the prescribed course of action maybe things would be different um not but it's like it's the, that kind of that was the kind of thinking that was prescribed to me or or, or, or given to me uh and, and and taught to me and so um ultimately it is defined as a choice and i don't mean to say that conversion therapists think that being gay is a choice often in fact They'll say it's it's not a choice. You're not choosing to do it. But this idea that if I am to do certain things to realign my gender identity, which then is to realign my sexuality, that's a choice, right? And so it is this habituated um, series, prescribed series of action or actions that will make you a certain way. And again, a lot of people nowadays won't use this rhetoric and things have changed in a number of ways, but there are still a number of conversion therapists who are peddling this drivel. Um, and it's, it's not uncommon. Again, there are some people who say like, I'm willing to like support you in your celibacy. It's like, you know, in the gift of celibacy, celibacy as they frame it. I'm like, what a gift that is. Like, no, mm -hmm. thanks. If you're, if it's such a gift, you can enjoy. I won't. <laughs> but, um, so it is, it is ultimately framed as, as a choice. You know, there is this emphasis placed on hegemonic or, uh, you know, dominant sense of masculinity, right. That it's very much cultural. Uh, that you know whatever is defined as as a man or to be masculine today is to um, that's the target um, and there are a lot of people who talk about being gay as gross they talk about it as being you know dirty or people were dirty or whatever it's like if, if it's so I mean again like for them to label it as gross they obviously haven't went on a on, on a gay date they would understand that it's not so gross it's actually a lot of fun but you know this is again <laughs> this is the language that that's used and 
Uh, and I think that that idea of being engrossed in that sort of like ad abject framing of, of the queer community as this like, you know, I think that, that the AIDS epidemic still haunts a lot of evangelical perceptions of the queer community, that we are this like diseased other, um, which of course we're not. Like, yeah, there are some people living with HIV. Um, there are some people living with AIDS. Um, but these are things that I think haunt the evangelical imagination, emphasis on imagination. Um, but I think that, you know, that's, that's certainly something that I struggled with for a long time that I thought that I was going to be gross. I thought I was going to be dirty. And it is something to consider, you know, how people see you and how people look at you and it, and it, to, to have people look at you and, and immediately have these preconceived notions, you can see the, the wheels turning in their head when you tell them that you're gay or, you know, you're, uh, you've encountered the evangelical somehow in your day-to-day -day life again. And when you do talk about that, there is this like, this, yeah, this like this look, right? This like condescending look. And it, it's like, it's kind of like where you look at, what is it? You're at the zoo and you're looking at the animal and the animal's looking at you like you're the crazy one. And you're like, no, no, my friend, like, come on. Um, but a weird power sort of dynamic. Uh, but it, it's something that for a long time I felt dirty, not because I was gay, but because I was told being gay is dirty. Um, and, and one of the points you had brought up too, Josiah, the idea of the Bible being clear on this. Um, what a wild claim for anything to say anything in, in the Bible is clear, <laughs> right? Like, um, I think, of course, there are some things that are, are pretty cut and dry. But I think when we look at, you know, homosexuality and the six verses that surround homosexuality, um, my gosh, I just, I would love to meet an evangelical who's actually A, um, who knows what the verses are, and then B, <laughs> knows um, the historical context surrounding any of them, the translation of the Bible, uh, their mm -hmm. understanding of how they interpret scripture, because of course, everyone has an interpretation. No one comes to the Bible simply just viewing the Bible as the Bible. We all come with preconceived notions. We all come yeah. with lenses. We all come with filters, right? Um, and so I would love to have a conversation with an evangelical who, who holds what they call a traditional, what I would call a homophobic view uh, of homosexuality, mm -hmm. um, because it's, it's, it's wild when you have people so confident in their beliefs, so confident in their bigotry when they don't know the verses themselves, when they don't know the context, the history, the translation, mm -hmm. and all of that surround, all that, all that which surrounds scripture. Um, I couldn't imagine having the hubris uh, of, of evangelicals to talk about something that I simply don't know anything about, and I've only simply heard about in church and not studied myself. I could not imagine uh, being so uh, arrogant. Yeah. Yeah. And a hypocrisy that kind of stands out as I'm hearing you talk is, you know, the center of the bullseye for evangelicals really is one man, one woman, and a whole bunch of kids. <laughs> that, that, that's what Mary. you're aiming for. Yes. We have five kids. We got five kids. <laughs> and, I'm one of five. Okay. I mean, it's because we're evangelicals. I mean, we <laughs> that we were like, that's why, you know, I wouldn't have said it at the time, but in hindsight, I'm like, well, I mean, that's why, you know, um, and it is definitely part of the message. And then they tell LGBTQ folk, but God's giving you the gift of celibacy when they can't even take good care of their heterosexual singles, never mind, you know, providing some vision and some place within the evangelical megastructure for, you know, here's our celibate gay worship leader. Like, no, no, like that's not going to happen. 
You know, you're not going to have any sort of a future within evangelicalism if you're even celibate and gay. And we had a previous podcast with Brian Pengelly, who's sharing kind of the, the frustrations and the hypocrisy of trying to live this out in the reality of even people that say love the sinner, hate the sin. They don't really love the sinner. There's not really a way forward. Um, so you have a lawsuit um not against Liberty University, but against the United States Board of Education, I believe, um, on gender conversion therapy. In the time that remains, can you tell us about uh, that lawsuit? What's your strategy and what's your uh, hoped out, your intended outcome? Yeah, so I'm one of 40, 40 plaintiffs. Uh, we're suing the U.S. Department of Education because every year the U.S. Department of Education gives billions, not just millions, but billions of dollars wow. to religious colleges and universities that actively discriminate against their LGBTQ students. And so what That's we're saying terrible. is it's absolutely terrible. Um, and there are, there are a number of these colleges, more so in the States than there are in Canada. Um, we have our Trinity Western, we have our Briarcrest, but Liberty is a, a part of a, a vast network of Christian and Mormon and other religiously affiliated universities and colleges uh, who hold homophobic views and treat their students uh, or discriminate against their LGBT students. So what we're saying is that we're not trying to change your bigotry. Of course, we would like their bigotry to change. We would like them not to be horrible to their students. Um, we're not saying that they have to change. But we're saying you can't finance your homophobia on the U.S. taxpayer's dime, right? So yeah. you can, it's the choice is you can, you can either change your policies, be inclusive as, you know, Bob Jones University, uh, you know, years ago had to change their policies about interracial dating. Um, you know, we're saying that either change your policy uh, or lose your funding. Uh, and again, Liberty specifically receives so much money every single year from the uh, the U.S. Uh, department, uh, pardon me, from the U.S. government, and so we're saying uh, choose. Uh, it's yeah. one. It's 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 one thing or the other. You can't be uh, a publicly funded university. They might be private, but they are a publicly funded university uh, and homophobic. And so what we're yeah. hoping for uh, is, of course, a win. We're hoping that this goes to the Supreme Court. We're hoping that this changes policies and that these universities. Um, that we, we, we back the Department of Education into a corner and, and say, you treat, you know, of course, with Title IX, which is uh, it's, uh, uh, something that has, offers protection uh, against gender-based discrimination, or pardon me, sex-based discrimination, should I say more accurately. Uh, we're saying that in, this, in, in the same way that uh, folks who are, uh, uh, for any racialized folks, for any people who are people of color, um, that they're protected. Uh, by the, the government and that the government will not offer monies to universities who have racist policies. Uh, again, sex, you know, based discrimination is of course also not okay. We're saying, can we do this also for gender identity and expression as well as sexual orientation? And so we're hoping that um, through this lawsuit, uh, these schools either change their policies and there of course is still a lot of follow-up that has to be done on top of this, you know, after this, in fact, Liberty yeah. says, yeah, we'll change our policies. Are they really changing their policies? Because with Title IX, you know, the sex-based discrimination uh, sort of office on campus isn't doing its job at Liberty. And there's been actually a number of podcasts that have been talking about that. Um, but on top of that, uh, we're hoping that, that, that queer folks, uh, members of the LGBT community are protected or Liberty uh, just finds an, its own way to, to, again, finance its homophobia. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great that you guys are doing that. Um, I'd heard about it a while back um, from one of the other plaintiffs and I'm just, really happy that you guys are doing that. I'm sure it costs a lot and takes a lot of 
energy and stress. Um, but good on you doing that. That is yeah. well worth a battle. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I know it's, it's weird, right? Cause like you're all of a sudden in the public eye, you know, I've, I've been writing a little bit and sharing my stories uh, from Liberty and, and what I went through and knowing that people are out there, you know, listening and then knowing that people, you know, you're, you're sharing some, some pretty private details that details that you didn't necessarily want <laughs> to share. Um, mm -hmm. But knowing that the greater good, like what I went through, um, if in fact I'm able to speak out against what I went through and speak out against schools like Liberty and, and make a change in that sense, um, not to find some sort of like redemptive moment in what I, what I went through, but if I am able to make change in my experience, then, then heck yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And it takes people using the power that they have to change the world. And it is a power that you have to write and to speak. Not everybody has that power and you've chosen to make yourself public. I guess that is a power that everybody has, but some people have certain vulnerabilities uh, where they're not able to be public and uh, you've chosen, you know, to use your power that way. And I just appreciate that because this is, um, this is, well, you, you said it's, you, you use the words kind and insidious and abusive, not all together, but I think those, I heard you say all three of those about conversion therapy. And this is kind of a theme that we see with a lot of evangelicalism is that it's kind, but insidious and abusive. And that's the worst kind of abuse to pinpoint and to heal from. If somebody abuses you and it's cruel and overt, well, you know, everybody's going to rally around you and say, well, that's, that's got to change. But this kind and insidious abuse is very harmful. Well, Luke, thank you so much for reaching out to us and coming on the podcast. It's been so yeah. good to hear your story. Um, just really appreciate it. It's, yeah, I'm so glad for what you're doing with that lawsuit. Um, I'm distracted with a toddler who came in. <laughs> so we will have you on again for a part two because I think there's so much more here that we can talk about. Um, so thank you for coming on and thank you everyone for listening. Yes. Have a good day, everyone.